Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. We continue south on our trip along the coast, and we have a few more stops here in South Carolina before setting foot in Georgia. This evening, we will explore a legend. In the tradition of legends, some of this will be a matter of public record, while other parts will be certainly an addition by American fancy. In Charleston, South Carolina, in the early 19th century resided one Lavinia Fisher and her husband, John. They operated the six-mile Wayfarer house, an inn for those traveling through the area. While serving as the proprietors of this inn, the local sheriff would report that guests would disappear. Unfortunately for the poor souls who would continue to visit the Wayfarer house, nothing came of those complaints. Legend claims that Lavinia would serve a drug tea to her guests and then, once retired to their room, either John, her husband, would stab the guest or Lavinia would activate a mechanism that would collapse the bed into a pit of spikes. The Charleston Post and Courier reported that a posse of vigilantes went to the neighborhood in February 1819 to stop alleged gang activities there. When satisfied, they left, but a man named David Ross would remain behind to keep an eye on the neighborhood. The following day, Ross was attacked by two men and put before the gang that had terrorized the area. Counted among the gang was none other than Lavinia Fisher, who ignored his pleas for help choked him, then smashed his head through a window. The man was able to escape and alert the authorities. It appeared that nothing immediately came of that report. Just after, though, another man visited the Wayfarer house. He was told there were no vacancies, but he would be welcome to rest for a while. The man, John Peoples, 
happened to be one of the few people on the East Coast who had no taste for tea and dumped the offered tea while his hostess was occupied. He would later report that she spent hours asking him questions about his business, then was informed that there was actually a room available. Suspicious, people slept in the chair by the door instead of the bed and was awoken in the middle of the night to the sound of the bed collapsing. People fled through the window and reported this to the authorities. With both incidents, finally, the police began an investigation which had identified John and Lavinia Fisher and several of the associated gang. John would then give up the rest of the gang in an effort to save his wife from a guilty conviction. The Fishers pled not guilty, but would be found guilty of highway robbery by the jury, which was a capital offense that would carry the death penalty. The judge allowed an appeal. While waiting for the new hearing, the couple attempted to escape from the Charleston City Jail. However, John was able to escape the cell, but the rope made from prison bed linens broke, leaving his wife trapped in the cell. John did not continue his escape, not wanting to leave behind his wife. The new hearing found the Fishers just as guilty as the first trial. In a bid to save her hide, Lavinia argued that South Carolina could not hang a married woman. The judge agreed and set John to hang first, and then his widow the following day. John Fisher had a Reverend Furman read a letter aloud to the collected audience, stating that as he is now a Christian, he could not be executed on a lie. The letter insisted on his innocence, asked forgiveness for those who wrongly sentenced him to execution, and then after the Reverend read the letter, confusingly, John asked for forgiveness. After the puzzling proclamation of innocence and then the plea for forgiveness, John Fisher was hung by his neck until dead. The following day, Lavinia and the gallows addressed the crowd gathered in front of the old city jail for her execution, asking, If any of you have a message for the devil, tell me now, for I will be seeing him soon. Then she leapt from the gallows, hanging herself, and putting herself as the first female serial killer in the United States. Let us get on to our stories. First up will be a story from Paul Kane. Paul Kane was born in the town of Chesterfield, Derbyshire, that's in the UK, in 1973, and grew up on an estate not too far away. The son of a miner and a former secretary, Paul developed a taste for the strange and outlandish at an early age. After his granddad read from a bedtime story about a mysterious house that dwelt within a sea of fog... In his early teens, he discovered the joys of horror, science fiction, and fantasy literature, raiding the local second-hand bookshops for anything and everything associated with these genres. Paul read insatiably, often sneaking away during school dinner hours to lose himself in the pages of such tomes. Paul has a very detailed biography on his website, which is, of course, linked in the show notes. He has an enormous collection of writing accomplishments, more than we could recount here. However, most recently... His new novel from ST Publications, Blood Red, is now available. If you visit his site and only have a few minutes to spend, spend them on his Hellraiser page. He had a quote from Clive Barker himself naming Paul as the resident Hellraiser expert. I really loved that puzzle box and what came out of him. Let's now hear Paul Kane's Guilty Pleasures, which you can find in his anthology Monsters from Alchemy Press. There was someone in here with her, someone watching her. Was that the door? 
No, just the wind rattling an upstairs window. She peered down the hallway to make sure. Nothing. Nobody there. Not her boyfriend back early from the gym where she should really be. Instead of in the kitchen, rifling through the tins in the cupboard to get to a hidden stash of chocolate. Nobody here, nobody watching. It was just her imagination playing tricks, her conscience having one last stab at changing her mind. It didn't work. She reached in and felt around for the Mars bar, her hand like a sniffer dog seeking out dope. Her fingertips recoiled when they touched the wrapper, then caressed the bar, grabbing, pulling it out through the silver barricade of processed peas and soup before closing the door. She fumbled with the plastic-coated sheath, finally ripping it open with her incisors and biting into the delicious gooey sweetness. A thin ribbon of caramel draped itself over her lip and chin. She licked at it with her tongue, not wanting to sacrifice a single morsel. In seconds, the bar had been devoured, leaving her with just the black, red, and gold remains. She opened the pedal bin with her foot and dropped the wrapper inside, pushing it down below the other garbage to keep the crumpled fish and chip paper company at the bottom. She knew Tim would never find them down there. But you'll know they're there, Jody, said a voice in her head. You'll know. And you'll only regret it when you step on those scales. Shut up, Jody told it. And telling Tim that you had to work late just so you didn't have to go and exercise. Just so you could secretly binge on chips and chocolate. I hope you're proud of yourself. I really do. Shut up. Just shut the fuck up. You've been doing so well lately, too. Lost a couple of pounds at your last meeting. You do realize you'll have put that back on and more besides. And so it began. First the pleasure, now the guilt. Jody bit her lip. If it hadn't been for the pain it caused, she might have chomped clean through and swallowed the chunk whole. Just like she'd done with the Mars bar. It was her nerves, you see. That's what made her... Quit making excuses... We both know what's got absolutely nothing to do with your nerves. You just like eating. Admit it. You always have done and always will. Sure, when you first met him, you hadn't looked too bad, but it's not as easy to hide those rolls now, is it? No wonder he wants to keep the lights off when... Just fucking shut up! Jody covered her ears with her hands as if it would somehow block the voice out. And for a few seconds it did, but it soon returned when she took her hands back down. If you carry on like this, there's no way you'll be able to fit into that bridesmaid's dress for your sister's wedding. It's only a few weeks away, you know, and look how much weight you've put on since you were measured for it. Jody ran out of the kitchen, ran down the hallway. From the corner of her eye, she spotted the mirror at the bottom of the stairs. Why don't you take a look? Go on. No! What are you so frightened of? Go on. Take a good look at yourself, Jody. Jody found herself moving towards the mirror, almost as if she was being pushed. Then she was standing in front of it, looking directly at her reflection, scrutinizing every extra bulge imagined or otherwise. The baggy t-shirt and skirt at least hid some of the damage. Thank God she wasn't naked. But you can imagine it. 
Can't you? You try your best not to catch a glimpse when you step out of the shower, but you can't help it. You see, you see, and you can see it now. Can't you, Jody? You've done this to yourself. You've lied and you've let yourself down. It won't be long before Tim sees right through you. Won't be long before he leaves you for somebody less. Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! Jody broke into tears and ran up the stairs, taking them two at a time. There was a slamming of the toilet door. Another reflection appeared in the mirror now, as the sounds of retching wafted down the staircase. Distorted, blurred almost, it shifted in and out of focus as if it didn't really belong in this reality. Parsley saw skin, pock-marked green, and stretched taut over a lean frame. Two burning yellow eyes, accusing eyes. The guilt demon smiled with crazy paving teeth. It would move on in moments, its work done here for the time being. The words it had whispered to Jody would haunt her for a good few days, play on her mind, and cultivate the eating disorder she would eventually develop. Then the demon would make her feel guilty about that, too, for spewing up good food when there were people starving in the world. She'd never win. By the time it was finished, Jody wouldn't know what she was doing. To eat or not to eat, it said. That is the question. These were interesting times for the guilt demon. Exciting times. At no other period in history had there been more reasons to feel guilty. Oh, there had always been guilt, ever since the first man and woman stood apart from the animals and realized they were different. Realized they were naked. But so very often in the past, the reprehensible acts of this curious species had been blamed on religion, on affinity to a particular group or country. People were burnt at the stake, beheaded and ripped apart with bullets, but this was justified because it was all for the greater good. There were too many constrictions, hardly any room to maneuver. It was all so different now. The inhabitants of this spinning blue and white ball no longer had faith. They no longer followed blindly. They had minds of their own. And that meant they made their own decisions, their own choices. And inevitably, those choices turned out to be wrong. The guilt demon didn't interfere, didn't influence these outcomes. Rather, it stepped in after the fact, after the damage had been done. It dealt in remorse, in shame and humiliation. It thrived on lamentation, using hindsight with skill and aplomb. It hadn't forced Jody to eat the chips or the chocolate, but it would certainly make her wish she hadn't. It would return to taunt her again and again, just as it did with all the others— just as it had for longer than it could remember. And it reveled in the torment it caused. The sound of Jody heaving up her guts as it left her house were like music to its ears. A concerto in vomit major. She had no idea it was there. Not really. Jody put all this down to her own guilt, which made the whole thing that much sweeter. Desire had a lot to answer for. Greed in Jody's case— Lost in the case of the next two it was visiting. A little after eight o'clock at night, the guilt demon watched for a few seconds at the window, hovering several feet above the ground. It watched the couple in the throes of passion, their coupling animalistic, all sweat and moans, sucking and licking. It had never seen the attraction, but was thankful for this ritual's existence. 
The act was over relatively quickly, and the pair lay back on the bed, exhausted. It had been monitoring their progress for some time, and knew that this moment was coming, if you'd pardon the expression. Tonight they'd finally given in to their feelings, the confusing tangle of love and lust proving too much. Sarah's husband, Adrian, was away for the night. His mother had been taken ill. Their daughter, Laura, aged five, was staying at a friend's house. Sarah had met Gary at the evening course she'd taken in photography. He made her laugh, made her feel special, made her feel attractive. Over the ten weeks of the course, Sarah found herself looking forward to Tuesday evenings more and more, couldn't wait to get out of the house and get to the local college, to see Gary. Always Gary. He was on her mind all the time, and she knew it was the same for him. A group of them had gone out for a drink at the end of term, and that's when they'd kissed for the first time. He'd caught her on the way back from the ladies. Their eyes had met again. She'd tried to resist him, but couldn't, and Sarah found herself being dragged outside into the pub's yard. The kiss had been electric, the touch of lips on lips, tongue against tongue. Neither had been able to deny it. "'I want you so badly,' he'd said to her, brushing a strand of dark brown hair out of her eyes. "'I want you too,' she told him. "'But not here, not like this.' So when the opportunity arose, they took it. Now it was time for the guilt demon to go to work. When Gary finally got up to go to the bathroom, the creature seized its moment. It crouched down next to Sarah on the bed, and as her gaze trailed Gary out of the room, it said, Well, that was stupid. Do you realize what you've done, and for what? For a cheap fumble with a guy you hardly even know. I know enough, Sarah replied, her voice low. Do you? Do you really? You've seen him a couple of hours a week, and most of that time was in class. It's infatuation, that's all. And now you've got it out of your system. It's not like that, said Sarah. I... You what? Just couldn't wait for Adrian to get lost so you could do it with him in the bed you share. Jesus, Sarah... Don't you have any thought for anyone other than yourself? Do you know what this would do to Adrian if he found out? What it did do to Laura? I just hope it was good for you, that's all. I hope he was worth it. He... I love... You love him? Is that what you're saying to me? The guilt demon pressed its face up close to hers, spitting as it spoke. You don't know the meaning of the word. Love isn't about all this. It isn't what you've just been doing. That was sex, Sarah, pure and simple sex. Love is when you care so much about someone you're willing to do anything for them. You put them before yourself. Is that what you've done with Adrian tonight? You might not know the meaning of the word, but he does. He worships you, Sarah, and you've betrayed him for a bit of fun. Sarah drew her knees up to her chest. She could hear water running in the bathroom, the splashing as Gary washed his face, washed his face in the sink Adrian used every morning to shave. Next to the bath they'd once shared together, the room filled with candles on their wedding anniversary. Don't you feel any shame for what you've done, Sarah? 
Don't you feel any guilt? Images flashed in Sarah's head now of a life not yet lived with Gary, of a messy divorce, of Adrian's face when she told him. Told him? She wouldn't even have to. He'd be able to see it in her eyes. He knew her so well. And this man, Gary, arguing with her because he didn't want to take on another man's child. Laura growing up, resenting her mother for what she'd done, for splitting the family apart, all because she didn't have the courage to say no. One simple word. No. Sarah put a hand to her mouth, a mouth that still tasted of Gary. She tried to wipe the flavor away, but found that she couldn't. It wouldn't go away. Ever. The guilt demon found Gary drying his face on a towel, washing away the slick sheen of his labors. It looked the man up and down. Then it began. So, what's the plan of action, Gary? It asked. You've taken advantage of this woman, so now what? Are you going to walk out of her life, just like you've done with all the rest? Are you going to do that to Sarah? No, Sarah's different. I... I really like her. Well, you fucked her, so you must have liked her. But she has no idea about your past, does she? No idea of your track record. You really liked all the others as well, didn't you? You're not going to stick with her for five minutes. You'll be off looking around again before you know it, leaving her to pick up the pieces of a broken marriage. You know she's falling for you. You like her. But do you like her enough? Three wives already, Gary. It's hardly a glowing testament. Maybe we could make it work. Maybe. And maybe not. There's a first time for everything, I suppose. And maybe you'll win the lottery on Saturday as well. Face it. You're just never going to let anybody into your life like that. You don't like losing control. You'll never tire of the thrill of the chase. And when you've got what you wanted, it always ends the same way. Remember what happened with Patsy. Remember how you fucked her and then really fucked her. You left that woman in such a state. No, I didn't mean to. You never do. Just don't know when to stop, though, do you? Never know where to draw the line. Sarah's an adult. She knew what she was doing. Oh, that's right. Put the blame on her. That's what you always do. Try to shift it onto someone else. Try to make it right in your own mind. How many times have you crossed them over, been seeing two at the same time? Never have the decency to drop one first before moving on to the next. Always telling yourself you're protecting the woman you're with by keeping your sordid little affairs a secret. Why didn't you tell Sarah about Beth? Gary sat down on the edge of the bathtub. Or you make excuses and say there's something wrong with them. Well, no, Gary. There isn't anything wrong with them, but there's something very wrong with you. Always has been. You're a user, and you don't care who gets hurt in the process. Don't care how many lives you wreck. N no. No. The phone chose that moment to ring, and Gary started. 
The guilt demon returned to the bedroom and found Sarah holding the receiver to her ear with both hands. It was Adrian telling her that his mother had had a massive stroke and died tonight, a little after eight o'clock. He was trying to keep his voice even, but it was cracking, and she knew instinctively that he'd been crying. I just wish you were here right now, Sarah. I just want to hold you. Sarah closed her eyes, and a tear trickled down her cheek. I love you so much, Adrian told her. You know that, don't you? Gary appeared at the door, and the tragic scene was complete. There was no need for the guilt demon to hang around any longer. Sated, it moved on to its next appointment. It's always a mistake to claim you have no conscience, to insist you don't feel guilt. Whenever you tell yourself this, you are throwing down the gauntlet, issuing a challenge. And usually when you say it, you've probably got more reason than most to be afraid. Roy returned to his small flat around eleven. He walked in and locked the door behind him. Then he tossed his bag onto the small bed and peeled off his gloves. He sighed. It had been a long day. He switched on the TV and flicked around with the remote control. A stupid arts program on one channel and, on the other, a sitcom so bad it had to be screened when most of the viewing public were fast asleep. He finally found a documentary on shark attacks and let it settle there. Roy cocked his head as he watched a great white take a lump out of one scuba diver's leg. As it was post-watershed, they showed most of the gory details, and Roy found it hard to tear himself away from the screen. Keeping one eye on the television, Roy went over to the bag and unzipped it. He pulled out the tools of his trade, a selection of knives in various sizes and shapes, from large bowie to the smaller scalpel-like blade. He'd wiped them at the seam with a cloth, but would still have to clean them properly in the sink to get all the blood off. This he did now, adding the implements to his washing-up pile and soaking them in fairy liquid, then leaving them on the yellow plastic drainer along with the plates and cups from his dinner earlier. Next, Roy popped the cloth and bag in the washing machine and set the cycle in motion. Easing down into his favorite armchair in front of the TV, he stared intently at the program, at the bloodletting, the biting, the splashing. He admired the way the sharks crept up on their victims, gliding effortlessly behind them until... He watched the rest of the documentary, his eyelids heavier by the second. It really had been a long day. But he wanted to watch this, it wasn't very often they put something decent on TV. And besides, he didn't like to sleep. Afterwards. Roy's eyes closed and he quickly snapped them open, shaking his head to fight off the tiredness. On the screen, another diver was struggling, in the eyes of a tiger shark this time. Roy leaned forward to get a better view. The diver turned and looked at the underwater camera, his face frozen with shock and fear. No, he was looking right at Roy, staring directly at him as the shark continued its attack. Then the diver pulled off his mask, ripping the oxygen out of his mouth. What the hell's he doing? Roy asked himself. He must be panicking half out of his mind. Bubbles floated in front of his face, but when they cleared, Roy could see him properly. And he recognized him. Why? gargled the diver, a young boy no more than twenty. Why, Roy? Roy twitched in the chair, opening his mouth. No, it couldn't be. Why'd you do it, Roy? Why'd you kill me? 
The shark was really going to town on the lad now, shaking him. Blood was rising with the bubbles, filling the screen, turning it crimson. Roy jumped up and snapped the TV off. He shook his head. It was late. His mind was playing tricks. There was a noise from the kitchen. Roy hesitated, then walked into the room. The washing machine had come to the end of its cycle, that was all. It clattered slightly as the bin inside stopped spinning. Roy let out the breath he'd been holding. Stupid. He was about to move forwards when the door swung open, spilling water onto his kitchen floor. But it wasn't fresh, clean water. It wasn't soapy, detergent-infused, either. This was dirty, muddy brown. It reached him where he stood, and it stank. Roy could see green tangles of weed in the spillage. A body flopped out of the washing machine, covered in the slimy substance. It raised its head, opened its mouth. It was the boy from the shark documentary. Roy gaped at his pleading face, those dead glassy eyes, those same green weeds clinging to his neck and chin. "'Why, Roy?' he asked again. "'Because you enjoy it? Because you like to see them squirm? Because of the feeling of power it gives you? You can decide. Do they live? Do they die?' Roy began to back off, but the boy scrambled after him along the wet floor. There was someone behind him. Roy spun around. There, standing out three feet away, was the figure of a young woman, the flesh missing from one side of her face, bone jutting through the decomposing skin. When she reached up her hand, earth and worms dropped from the appendage. "'Why? Why did you kill us, Roy?' she said. "'We had our whole lives ahead of us. I was about to start at university.' "'I was going to be a firefighter,' spat the boy from behind just like my dad. My girlfriend sits alone in our home and cries every night, said a third voice to his left. Roy snapped his head sideways and saw another man, covered in bits of garbage. Maggots crawled over his many knife wounds. Now more joined the throng. A woman slit from neck to groin, holding her bowels in her hands. A man with no fingers on his right hand sliced off one by one. A child sobbing, her neck wide open. So many they filled his small flat, all demanding to know... Why? No, keep back. You're not real. None of this is real. The sink exploded in a geyser of crimson. The fountain rained down on them all, painting the scene blood red. This isn't real, shouted Roy. Of course it isn't, said one final voice in his ear. You're fast asleep in that armchair, Roy. You're having a nightmare. But this was the only way I could get to you. The only way I could make you see. Don't like to think about them afterwards, do you? The things you did, the places you left them. Dumped in the river, buried in shallow graves, or abandoned on rubbish tips. They're just meat to you when they're satisfying your hunger. But look, Roy, look at their faces now. The guilt demon grabbed hold of his head and shoved it in this direction and that, prizing open Roy's eyes. You did this. You did this, but you're so hard and emotionless, aren't you? Such a cold fish. You could never feel caught up about what you've done. Or could you? Roy's victims approached, pressing him against the wall, piling on him. 
The guilt demon was handing out Roy's knives to the crowd, and one by one they were taking it in turns to slash at him to have their revenge. The guilt demon stood back from them, smiling with satisfaction as the first screams filled the air. It had many more visits to make in the space of that twenty-four hours. A twelve-year-old boy who'd just discovered self-abuse whilst thinking about one of his mother's friends and the low-cut blouse she liked to wear. An aging headmaster whose past at a private school was rapidly catching up with him. An office worker who'd cheated a colleague out of a job promotion and snagged it for herself. A high-ranking politician who'd hired a hitman to bump off a former lover so she wouldn't jeopardize his marriage or career. The hitman himself after he'd done the deed, a film star who'd promised his fans and his loved ones he was off drugs, but simply couldn't abide the taste of cold turkey, and a charity worker who was siphoning off money to pay for her very expensive fashion tastes. In every single instance, it goaded and mocked, irritated and argued, until it was content with the results. But the last stop on this particular guilt trip was a favorite of the demon's. It had returned often to this one home, this one woman, because, unlike all the others, she was not the architect of her own downfall. No. Instead, fate had pointed its finger at her and prodded hard. What had happened wasn't her fault. She'd done nothing wrong, and yet she was still worthy of its attentions. The guilt demon let itself into Kim's semi and looked around. There was nobody home, just a note on the coffee table. It picked up the paper and scanned the words. Kim shivered. She watched the sun setting and knew it would be the last time. The wind buffeted her and she pulled the coat around her tighter. It was an instinctive thing, really. In a few minutes she'd be colder than she'd ever been before, so what did a little chill matter? Kim looked down from the top of the multi-story car park, the most appropriate place she could think of. The view made her feel dizzy. Her eyes were red, but no tears came. There were none left. Night after night, pouring out her sadness until there was nothing left to give. The parents hadn't blamed her, not even at the funeral. If they'd only kept a closer watch on their son, their son, Joshua. That name hurt Kim physically. She saw snatches of the accident, everything happening so quickly and yet in achingly slow motion. The parked cars, the small blur dashing out from behind them, rushing across the road to an ice cream van. She'd braked, but he'd bounced over her bonnet and roof like a rubber ball. He only bounced once on the concrete behind her, though. In her lowest moments, Kim thought she remembered seeing Joshua's eyes, his blue eyes thought they'd somehow stared at each other, somehow connected before. All she could remember was after that was the flashing light of the ambulance, the paramedics trying to revive him, then covering him with the blanket. She hadn't been speeding, hadn't been drinking. Christ, she'd only been to the shops to pick up some milk and eggs. If she'd known what the cost would be, she never would have eaten or drunk again. And although she was cleared by the police, forgiven by Joshua's parents— Kim couldn't even begin to forgive herself. The voice returned time and again over the months, without fail. If only you'd seen him sooner. If only you'd reacted more quickly. If only... 
If only. If only. It didn't seem right. Didn't seem fair that she should be alive today and he wasn't. So she decided finally to settle the score. It was time to pay her dues. This wasn't a life she was living anyway. It was just an existence, and a tormented existence at that. Soon, she would silence the... Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Was forever. And hopefully, God willing, she would find peace. Kim had waited till there was nobody around. Waited till she was alone on the top of the building. A building filled with the killing machines she'd been driving that day. And she climbed up onto the ledge, swinging her legs over the barrier railing. Heights had never really bothered her, which was why she'd chosen this method of release, but they were bothering her right now. The flat, paved space at the back of the lot loomed up at her, and she swallowed dryly. Could she do it? Could she really do it? Yes. Yes, she had to. It was her duty to atone. But still she wavered on the precipice, her legs failing her. For one split second she thought she might even climb back down again, her courage wavering. Then she saw that look in Joshua's eyes once more, and she let herself fall. Over the edge, plummeting to her death. The guilt demon arrived too late to witness the event. It looked down over the side of the multi-story at the body of Kim, arms and legs at odd angles, a thick puddle seeping out from underneath, the dying sun covering her with its own blanket of darkness. And it almost felt something. Look at what you did. You pushed her too far. You know that the accident couldn't have been helped. Just one of those things. And now, instead of one wasted life, there are two. How can you do what you do each day? How? It almost felt... No. Stop. That wasn't going to happen. 
pulling away from the edge, the creature departed. What was done was done, and besides, it had exercised its own guilt demons so very long ago. That was Paul Kane's Guilty Pleasures, as read by Veronica Giger. Veronica is a voiceover artist and author. She is a co-author, voice talent, and producer for the Secret World Chronicle podcast, and she writes and world-builds for comic publisher Incubator Press. She is also an active voice at HG World in The Diary of Jill Woodbine, and she continues to read for authors in the realms of science fiction, fantasy, romance, and of course right here, with horror. Rumors exist of an alter ego fueled by caffeine, trudging through the mire of higher education administration in pursuit of the letters P, H, and D. Said creature often dabbles in psychology and early adulthood learning strategies, possesses an affinity for comic books and small talking horses, and strives alongside her spouse to raise literary-minded geek children. Our second story of the night comes from John Mickelveen. John M. Mickelveen is author of the paranormal suspense novel Hannah Ware and two story collections, Inflictions, and Jerks and Other Tales from a Perfect Man. He's a father to five daughters, works at MIT's Lincoln Laboratory, and lives in Haverhill, Massachusetts with his fiancée, Roberta Colasanti. He has an affinity for black licorice, whoopie pies, and good tequila. Aren't we all, John? I think I've put Jose Cuervo's grandkids through college personally. Tonight's story, Infliction, you'll be able to find in John's anthology, Inflictions, a collection, from Crossroad Press and Macabre, Inc. And now, John Mickelveen's Infliction. How do you judge a scar? They are all different. Scars are not prejudice. A ten-pound infant or a ten-ton boulder can scar or be scarred. In my forty-nine years, I have scarred and been scarred. The knowledge is now more a part of me than my own callous heart. My oldest scar had nearly healed. I had cast off my demon. I had exercised a thirty-year addiction to the bottle, any bottle, as long as it held the spirit of numbness within. I walked proudly my chin held high and my nose in the air, swaggering with the arrogance of a winner. But I wanted to be victor in more than the conquest of alcohol. That was a mere battle in the war for my soul. It had been more than seven months since I last surrendered to the drink. Not so well, the guilt. I had destroyed my family. It had been four years since Susie, my only child, ran away. Two years since my wife, Taipei, stepped off the Hampton Beach jetty, freely surrendering herself to the icy midnight waters of the Atlantic Ocean. Taipei. She was a study of smoothness, a classic Japanese beauty as exquisite as a Monet brushstroke, in the way she moved, the way she spoke, the way she loved, the way she died. In one liquid moment, pouring like a mercury from my life into the Atlantic. They found her drowned body the following morning, 
lying on the beach like a gift from the early morning tide. I was at home, unaware, drowning in my own intoxicated death, too drunk to realize or care about her absence from our bed, unknowing that my only bond to normalty was laying not even a mile from where I lay. All her pain and regrets, all her scars, were given up, transposed by water with her last breath. I attended Taipei's funeral in the same way I attended my life, from behind an inebriated gauze curtain. I remember little of the ceremony, but the people with accusation in their eyes will forever remain with me, through common respect, while compassionately patting me on the back and emitting a stream of kind words, they tried to hide the blame, but it was like covering an alligator with a bath towel. Regardless of how well they tried to cover it, parts would always show, fully emerging to lash out if it came too near. Your fault, the alligator said. You failed her. Taipei would have seen it as her failure, not mine. That was her way. That was her gift and her curse. I can now see that when we met, I became her personal venture, her mission of mercy. I know she loved me. Her passion was pathos. Susie's running away was the end for Taipei. She saw it as her final failure, the big push that ultimately and literally drove her over the edge. We knew where Susie went, though the truth was almost laughable. The thought of a fifteen-year-old girl joining a traveling circus seemed ludicrous, like a plot straight from a child's book or movie. Taipei searched for two years while I submerged myself deeper in drunkenness, hiding in intoxication. And then Taipei escaped. I found myself in an empty house within an empty life. Taipei and Susie were gone, and I was suddenly alone to fend for myself. I was like an abandoned infant. Everything was new and estranged. I hadn't cooked a meal in more than twenty years. The only child of parents who passed away more than a decade earlier, I was left with only two companions, alcohol and guilt. Both ate away at my insides like a violent river eroding the walls of my health and sanity. Bob Lynch was a large but gracious man whose generous heart was his own tormentor. He owned the garage where I had worked since my teens, though a lesser man would have fired me years earlier. I had not shown up for work in three days. Bob found me lying on my bedroom floor, a broken man swimming in a sea of empty bottles and his own waste. I was drowning, yet clinging to a bottle like a lost lover, clinging to the shards of a shattered life. It was nearly a year and a half after Taipei's funeral. Bob dragged me into Hawthorne House, a local rehabilitation center. He would pay the bill as long as I was not released until I was cured. Bob was yet another love neglected by my weakness. He bestowed the unconditional love of a brother, owing nothing, asking nothing, and, sadly, getting nothing in return, except a barely adequate mechanic with a lifeload of problems. I signed myself out the next morning with every intention of returning to my comfortable oblivion, nestled between the familiar sheets of guilt and drunkenness. I wanted to drink myself back to the muted memories of a woman who gave me everything, 
I wanted to return to my gullible drunken form, where I could convince myself of happiness and of times that had never existed, and hid from the times that did. All of that changed with three words. What Taipei could not do with twenty-five years of love and begging, one young woman achieved with three simple words. Sobriety is a wonderful hearing aid. I was drawn by the sobs of a teenager who sat in the rehab lobby. She was aged by her addiction, but I figured her between fifteen and eighteen. Her blonde hair was stringy and dirty, her eyes sunken and ringed with the mascara of a drug addict. She stared at the floor, tolerating the overplayed sympathy from an attendant. I don't matter, she said through her tears. Her desperation was a throat-clutching smoke that filled the room, seeping through the cracks of soberness in a broken man's armor. The aide tried to convince her otherwise, looking uncomfortable while her eyes scanned the lobby for help. She wore her inexperience like a flamboyant hat. The girl glanced at me, and I saw eyes that I had thought of too seldom in the last four years. In the last nineteen years. In their carved-out depths I read things seldom found in eyes of someone four times her senior. There was pain, defiance, fear, blame, loneliness, rejection, and beneath it all, unfathomable to me, love. It was illogical. It didn't belong there. It stood singular, like a towering rose in a field of weeds, begging for attention. How could this child still find room for love? For possibly the first time in my adult life, I wanted to cry. How could I have been so blind? How could I have been so heartless? Though this girl did not look anything like my Susie, the connection was there. At that moment I vowed to find her so I could tell her that she now mattered, that I was sorry that fate burdened her with a father who was so narrow, so careless, that he would allow the two finest things in his life to slide through his numbed hands without even the flattery of an attempted grasp. I would have given my life right then just to feel Susie in my arms, to kiss her face and hear her say, I love you, Dad forgive you. To embrace my daughter, the only link to Taipei and the remnants of a life that could have been so good, if not for my ignorance. Perhaps there was still a chance for forgiveness through Susie. I went home that evening and poured every trace of alcohol down the toilet. I dumped my aftershave, rubbing alcohol, and cooking sherry, bidding farewell to my lifelong mistress and turned my back before she could seduce me again. For two days I cleaned my home with a vehemence that I could not recall ever having. I scrubbed the floors and the walls, behind the refrigerator, stove, washer, and dryer, and then I would lie on the floor, writhing while the remnants of my dependency hammered at my temples and drained out of me through my pores. I washed the curtains, sheets, and lampshades, and scoured every surface, then kneel over the toilet as my system rejected anything solid or non-alcoholic. 
I wanted to remove any evidence of myself from the house for fear that the ghosts and demons of my past would haunt the next residence and betray my secrets. The house sold easily after only two weeks on the market. Understandably so for such a fine home. It was a proud manner for which I could claim no credit. I inherited it. Any personality shown on or within its walls was the work of Taipei or my parents. I was ashamed to its money for it. I sold it for $225,000 with furnishing. Much to the displeasure of my confounded real estate agent, the house was appraised at $269,000. Bob Lynch cried when I told him I was leaving, though the revelation didn't really surprise him. Like a parent who loses a rebellious child, there is still love and pity. It still hurts. I couldn't answer his questions of where I was going or why. They were answers I didn't have. I simply told him that I had dropped my heart four years ago, and that I needed to find it. I said no when he offered me money. My search for Susie was rooted in the shallow and dry dirt of optimism. The prospect of her still being with the circus four years later was paper-thin, but substantial enough for hope. Perhaps someone would remember the girl. I forgot. Finding the name of the circus was like searching for bugs under rocks. You flip one and then move to another, knowing that eventually it would turn up. I found an ad in the Portsmouth Herald archives from four years earlier, trumpeting the arrival of Dunn and Barlow's magnificent World Fair. Traveling circuses move like butterflies. They flutter erratically on an inconclusive path, leaving little clue of where they've been and even less of where they're going. Hampton Beach Town Records showed nothing except a statement for the land that Dunn and Barlow's had leased. Like a butterfly, they arrived, left, and never returned. No information was available beyond that. Bud Martin had a good memory. He owned the Sand Dollar, a diner located across the boulevard from the Hampton Beach State Park, the land Dunn and Barlow's had rented. Bud's the talkative sort, with plenty of nothing to say and shared his wisdom with the flip of a burger. He served an abundance of both for your dollar. He recalled the circus, but remembered no names. He said it was better that way. However, he remembered a conversation about a town in Vermont called Woodstock, then spoke of a concert he had attended many years ago with the same name. For more than three months I followed such leads, a man and his cutlass. Tracking baseless clues across the country, like a cat chasing a string, I zigzagged across America with my life's possessions jammed in the trunk, my conviction and hopefulness dying a little more with every day end. But at 3 a.m. in a sleepy cafe in Sarasota, Florida, I met a nosy truck driver named Kennedy who overheard my inquiries. He shared a great story with me. He said, when you live on the road, lonely hour after hour, billboards play a weighty role. They break the monotony of the blacktop, since they are one of very few things in a long hauler's life that change with any regularity. Dunn and Barlow's was a name familiar to both the trucker and billboards. Like the truck driver, traveling circuses are nomads, night gypsies that move by the night of the moon, occasionally crossing paths on the dreary road. Kennedy recently saw the name in Pennsylvania, somewhere along Route 80, he said. Twenty hours later, 
I stood near the edge of a large field in Moon Township, Pennsylvania, staring at the twin yellow peaks of Dunn and Barlow's magnificent World Fair tent. My vision swam in the heat of a treacherous June afternoon, causing the sight to ripple lazily in the golden pasture. My heart yearned to run onto the fairway, calling for Susie, needing the truth. My heart feared the truth. I walked tentatively, following the crushed grass of the tire and foot-hammered path. Children dashed excitedly by reveling in the vow of the big top. I envied their enthusiasm and faith, and their naivete. A profusion of smells, sweltering and concentrated, escorted me into the concourse. Italian sausage, hay, freshly cut wood, animal waste, and new paint merged and hit me with long-forgotten memories of days when I, too, ran with reckless abandon and little more to worry about than length of wait at the main event. The bazaar was alive with noise and screams of excited children, a pitchman's banter, and the mechanical whir of the rides. Over the loudspeakers, a voice like B.C. Fields promised a night of wonder and magic beyond belief and miracles every half an hour. I wandered the park hoping for Providence, the hand of an angel to steer me along. Susie smiled at me from the photo I held. Her face glowed, a paradox between teenage awkwardness and newfound sexuality. Her eyes sparkled with rebel enthusiasm, but they held a darkness that was barely at bay. A frog in a child's hand struggling for freedom, burrowing for the first opening large enough to allow escape. She had found that hole. Physically, she was an Americanized version of her mother, a bolder and more solid reproduction. Like her mother, her hair was black silk, so lustrous it appeared blue. She had the same almond eyes, staring deliciously from above high, sharp cheekbones. The only visual difference being Susie was six inches taller and twenty-five pounds heavier than her mother. She had the body of the all-American girl. Taipei had carefully chosen the name Susie because it, along with our daughter, smacked of both Japan and America. You would never be sure without asking. I showed Susie to the barker as he bellowed of the terrors in the devil's den. Stale air and the smell of dead wood were the only ghosts in that haunted house. He shook his head at the picture and shrugged an apology. He then offered me a trip into hell. I told him I'd already been. Another yelled of freaks and oddities, of Lucas, the two-headed man, of Belle, the world's fattest woman, of Carla, the human wound, and of Mickey, the world's smallest man. He, too, offered me nothing but a view into the world of weirdness. Madame Zorak had nothing to share, but for five dollars could read my fortune. Who knows what it would reveal? I paid her a twenty not to. Well into the night I asked, begged, and cried, but received only looks of sorrow and mistrust. Some would ask questions or wish me good luck, but most just wordlessly shook their head. Nothing could have prepared me for the death of my soul, for the murder of the remnants of my heart. I had never experienced such emptiness, such an undiluted sense of helplessness. Like an astronaut who breaks the umbilical from the ship and then drifts too far. 
I knew at one point in my insignificant life that the possibility of not finding Susie was the worst thing that could happen. I had never been so wrong. Susie, or Carla the Human Wound, recognized me immediately. The revulsion I felt when I first saw her was indescribable, though I did not recognize her. I had just viewed Belle, the world's fattest woman, and the almost laughable sight of Mickey, the world's smallest man, perched comfortably on the meaty mattress of her belly. I pushed the curtain aside to view the next curiosity, and what I saw was a nightmare in flesh. The woman, only distinguishable by the swell of her breasts in her dark blue bikini top, rose from her chair as I entered the viewing room. A knowing smile seemed to appear on her ravaged face as she neared the glass. Gaping scars crossed every viewable surface of her body, parallel furrows bisecting every half-inch. She posed, distending her chest, presenting her arms, legs, and back as if she were a prized bodybuilder. She ran her fingers down the length of her leg, following the course of the channels in her skin. Smaller ravines ran from her chin, mouth, nose, and eyes to her ears, which were tattered ribbons of flesh and cartilage that had been repeatedly healed to form a callous shell. She met my stare, and that was when I recognized her. Susie. Those almond-shaped eyes, just like Taipei's, were the only recognizable part of the once beautiful girl. Her upper lip was cleft beneath the nose, making her mouth appear cleft and feline, and whatever remained of her lovely oil-black hair was now a patchwork of stubble and scar tissue. I watched, benumbed, as Susie performed. She modeled with a fervor she probably showed to no other customer. Today's audience was special. Susie advanced to the plexiglass wall, her eyes locked with mine, and that smile, that ghastly smile, fixed on her face. Merely inches apart, our faces divided by only half an inch of plastic. Susie obscenely licked the glass, her tongue was divided into three even strips. I ran from the sideshow, horrified and appalled, trying to escape the incredible blackness that threatened to fold over me. It fluttered at the edge of my consciousness, some horrendous truth, like enormous bat wings that wanted to trap and smother me. I collapsed beside the ticket booth, fighting the nausea that coiled like snakes in my stomach. How could she do that to herself? Why? What could make someone do that? I knelt in the dirt, shaking and sobbing as people walked warily past. Come with me, someone said. Belle, the world's fattest woman, leaned her enormous form precariously forward and helped me onto my shaking legs and led me away from the fairway. I didn't resist. I was too weak. We weaved between booths and tents, as she led me a half-dozen Winnebago campers, arranged in a circle, like a caravan rounding up the wagons to fend off attack. We entered one of the trailers through a widened custom threshold, the vehicle pitching significantly as Bell climbed three steps. Sit, 
she said without compassion, motioning to a small table. Inside the camper was surprisingly clean, and smelled of coffee and fried onions. On the counter near the sink lay an open bag of Canada mints, so commonplace in a world that had just become so alien and foreboding. I waited for what may have been just a few minutes, but it seemed like a small eternity. She came through a doorway at the far end of the camper, wearing an emerald green full-length robe and looking so normal through the dimness of the tight hallway. She carried a bag of cotton balls and a bottle of isopropyl alcohol. She set them on the table and sat across from me. Hello, father, she said. Her words ill-formed on the tattered strips of her tongue, not the sweet, honeyed voice I remembered. Susie, I said. I felt sick, saddened, and very uneasy by the sight of my daughter, nearly unrecognizable as she stood before me. Call me Kara. Susie died four years ago. She raised her leg on the bench beside her, freeing it from her robe and exposing the web of scars. Why'd you come here? she asked, her question whistling, but logical from her tortured mouth. Taipei, your mother died two years ago, I told her, not knowing what else to say. I was rattled and had a tremendous desire to run, to escape this nightmare and run until I could run no longer. Yeah, I know. Killed herself. I knew that was coming, she said. She uncapped the alcohol, poured some into a shallow saucer, and then looked at me, skewering me with her still beautiful eyes. We had different ways of escaping you, but she was better at it. Her words confirmed what I had already known, though a small part of me had vainly hoped differently. She took a single-edge razor blade from her robe pocket, unwrapped it, and dipped it in the alcohol. She repositioned her leg slightly, and then ran the blade deftly along a rut in her calf, opening a narrow line of blood inside an existing channel. My body contracted in an icy convulsion, and the blackness threatened again. I felt as if I'd just grabbed a live wire. Why do you do this? I asked. It's living, she said, and then accused. It's a life. She dabbed a cotton ball in the alcohol, then ran it along the fresh wound. Her jaw tightened slightly. Isn't it odd that the same spirit that cleanses my wounds Rotted your soul? she asked, displaying the blood-tinged swab. You're on the wagon now, right? Reformed? I'm trying. It's been a few months, I admitted. A little fucking late, wouldn't you say? I was defenseless. What could I say? She ran the blade along another wound. But why? Do you do this, Susie? Carla, I repeated my earlier question. They're Novocaine. These wounds hurt less than the others. They help take my mind off the bigger and deeper ones. She swabbed at the slice in her leg. I could sense something bigger than life creeping up on me, like a stalking cat, 
It stopped every time I tried to focus on it. They're my protector and my savior, she was saying, her distorted voice barely audible above the pulse pounding in my head and in my ears. They're my guarantee that no man, no bastard, can ever hurt me again. She ran the blade deeper as anger ran deeper in her voice. Sweat ran down my back, from my brow into my eyes, stinging as it mixed with my tears. She sat up and turned to face me, her eyes brimming with tears and the pain of betrayal. She opened her robe, exposing her mutilated breasts. Revulsion and remorse attacked me, a feral beast tearing at my heart, at the memory of this once beautiful woman. I screamed at the pain and at the revulsion. Her eyes, darkening with rage, met mine again. What's wrong, Daddy? You don't find me attractive anymore, Daddy? There it was. Like the boy who discovers the forgotten bag of marbles hidden on the top shelf, it all came tumbling down over my head. Sneaking into her room, pushing the chair under the doorknob, ignoring her terrified eyes and her tears, hiding from Taipei, hiding from myself. Susie closed her robe, her eyes, flames, burning into me. For once, she had the upper hand. For once, she was the tormentor. I lowered my head to the table and covered my ears, trying to block the truth, hoping it was all an illusion. Leif, she said, I don't want you here. I don't need you opening old wounds. I do that fine on my own. What could I say or do? I'm sorry would have been a colossal insult. It wouldn't amount to a speck of dust in the universe of irreparable harm I had caused her. This is my life now. Leave it alone, Carla said. Devastated by self-disgust, I rose without a word and left. Shortly after, I returned to the camper with two suitcases. One contained several of Taipei's personal items that I had hoped Susie might want. The other contained the cash from the sale of the house. These aren't mine, I said to her, and slid the two suitcases in. I know that I could never correct what had happened in our lives, and I wasn't going to pretend that the money and Taipei's belongings were a token of such. I stated it as it was. They were not mine. I had done nothing to earn any of it. Carla didn't acknowledge me. She just kept on with her handiwork. I left with nothing, which was truly my own. That was John Micklevine's Infliction, as read by our own Tales to Terrify editor, Philip Oldham. Philip Oldham is a Colorado native, a jack-of-all-trades, working in everything from construction to retail to IT. He's currently working on getting his degree in English and digital media production. Living near Denver with Sweeney Todd, the psycho cannibal cat, Philip enjoys reading, gaming, and figuring out how to not burn his kitchen down while making something delicious. 
He's joined the district with the hope of giving something back to the patio cast and community which has brought such fun and adventure to his life. And that will be our show for the night. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 